You're listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer with Gina Militia, one of Australia's leading portrait celebrity and lifestyle photographers. With over 25 years' experience in the industry, Gina is a pro photographer who regularly travels the world shooting for some of the country's top magazines and advertisers. She is author of four best-selling books on photography, runs workshops and mentors aspiring photographers all around the world. In conversation with journalist, interviewer and budding amateur photographer Valerie Koo, Gina reveals what it takes to build a successful photography business, provides a sneak peek into life behind the lens and talks about her tips and techniques to get the perfect shot. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 257 of So You Want to Be a Photographer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Gina Militia. How are you, Gina? I'm great, Val. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good. I'm very excited about this week's episode, how to shoot, print and sell landscape images with photographer Tom Putt because I've had a look at his images and I think that they're awesome. Aren't they? They're just gorgeous. Yes. Mm. But before we get stuck into that, we want to give a big shout out to Tracy from the UK who um, has given us a review on iTunes, the gift that keeps on giving, she's called it. Now, Tracy has said, just when you think this podcast can't get any better, another episode comes out that gives yet more technical information in an entertaining manner. Two months ago, I was looking for a podcast to listen to on the way home. Now I'm hooked, listening to the weekly episodes and catching up on the back catalogue. I'm now a fully-fledged Goldie and integrated into the podcast community on Facebook. How did this happen? (laughs) Well, it's because Gina and Valerie present the information in such a wonderful manner. Gina, with the technical information presented in such a way anyone new to pro can understand. For Valerie, with her probing questions that will be on the top of the tongue of any newbie. A brilliant partnership that just goes from strength to strength. Thank you both. You've helped me grow more than I could express in words. Oh, wow. Oh, How cool wow. That? That's so cool. Thank, Thank you, you, Tracy. Tracy. <laughs> oh, that's just, you've made our day. I can, I'm pretty sure I'm speaking on behalf of Gina when I say that. Um, yes. Yeah, that is so cool. Thank you so much. And of course, if you have, you know, two seconds, maybe more than two seconds, maybe 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes. We'd really be grateful because it helps us in the rankings. All right. Let's also, yes. Sorry, Tracy's a a Goldie too, which is amazing. So, and welcome to all the new Goldies who have come in. Fantastic to be working with you guys. And of course, if you want to find out a little bit more about the Gold community, have a listen to this. Hey guys, are you an enthusiast or pro photographer who wants to take their photography to the next level? I'd love the opportunity to work with you and I want to introduce you to my Gold community. The Gold community is an educational resource where members get access to photography courses and regular tutorials. There's over 200 tutorials with more being added each month. In these tutorials, I take you on set with me and I share my thought process behind scouting locations, posing and directing models, lighting and post-production. You get to see the entire shoot from start to finish, from surface in Sri Lanka using a single speed light 
to character portraits on the streets of Sicily using daylight or high-end studio shoots where I share all my posing and connecting hacks. There's also regular photo critiques, monthly live calls and heaps more. As a member, you'll also have access to my exclusive Facebook group and online forum where you'll be able to connect with other members from all over the world. So what are you waiting for? Join the Gold community today and start taking the kind of photos you've always dreamed of. You can check it out at ginamilitia.com. Right, this week we're talking to Tom Putt on how to print and sell landscape images, which is really cool because I'm interested in this for sure. Uh, So Tom Putt has been doing photography for, oh, decades now and is a fine art landscape photographer. He fell in love with photography at the age of 18 following his love of ornithology. Now, ornithology, in case you don't know, is birds. So he photographed birds and then he moved into sports photography covering events including the Olympic Games, the Paralympic Games, but has always been passionate about the Australian landscape. So that's basically how he decided to specialise in fine art landscape photography. So let's have a listen to Tom Putt. Tom Putt, welcome to the show. How are you going? Oh, hi, Gina. I'm going great, thank you. Thanks for having me on board. It's great to chat to you. So last time, uh, well, I met you for the first time uh, last year uh, at the Bright Festival of Photography, and I think I cornered you and uh, bombarded you with a million questions where you went, what, what, are you a cop or something? Why do you ask so many questions? Sorry. Yeah, we first met up there, and uh, what a fantastic festival that was. And, yeah. Um, it was great to meet you and find out a little bit more about what you do. Yeah, we'll be doing it again uh, at the uh, at the end of this year. So I'm excited to see what pants you turn up in. Well, you're famous for your pants, aren't you? You like um, well, about. I, I want to I... kindly I say they're they're um, they're what would be a kind word? They're, they're loud, Tom. Oh. <laughs> they're different. Yeah, I, I kind of I don't know. Um, Nick Fletcher, who runs. Um, the Bright Festival of Photography started labelling me as, you know, this guy with the fancy pants. And so it became expected that I would wear these pants whenever I was in public or or not. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, look, I, I I have made them a bit of a a uniform at my gallery that I now have in Mornington. So um, I wear them uh, every now and again down there as well, just as, um, I don't know, something different. I, I don't mind standing out a bit and, and I don't mind the attention being on me. So they're a bit of fun. And I think um, if you're an artist, you can kind of get away with that sort of thing as well. Fantastic. Now, <laughs> like I've seen your incredible jaw-droppingly beautiful uh, aerial and landscape images how why landscape why is it what draws you to landscape rather than why aren't you photographing buildings or portraits what is it about landscape that you're drawn to i love being outdoors i love the environment for that reason um you know part of me has just always got to see the sky or, or nature at some part of the day you know i could never be in an office job where i went to work in the dark and came home in the dark that would just be horrible to me i i've always 
being one of those people that likes being outdoors. So a natural extension of that is just to be able to photograph it. And um, I discovered early on that I had an eye for a photograph. That was when I was 13. And so from then, I've just always followed that passion of creating through photography and landscapes in particular, I guess. Um, I love the idea of creating pretty pictures. And, and to me, that's what I'm able to do when I get out and about with my landscape photography. So in your opinion, what when you're looking at other photographers' landscape images, what makes a killer image? What's a killer landscape image that you just ticks all the boxes for you, that you just stops you in your it's tracks? It's a great what question, Gina, because um, we, we were talking before we started this recording about awards, right? Will we touch on that yeah. during this interview or not, or podcast, I'm not sure, but... Um, you know, when I come to select my own photographs to enter into awards, I'm often looking at what is it that makes up that image that will have it stand out against the thousands of others that they're obviously uh, evaluating. And and I think when I'm looking at other people's work, I'm always looking at the uniqueness of the image. I guess I look at so many photographs each and every day on Facebook, Instagram, elsewhere that if I'm looking at a place that I haven't seen before, I'm like, and it catches my attention. I'm like, oh wow, okay, that's different. I haven't seen that before. Where is that? Particularly here in Australia, because I've done most of my photographic work here in Australia. Um, I think the other thing is is light. I mean, I, I know it gets used a lot, and obviously, in photography, it's so vitally important. But if you get something that's just so well lit, um, it, it really does create so much impact. And, and really helps your photograph stand out from everything else. And and I wish I'd probably done more of that. I guess you know you know more of that evaluation when I'd been taking my photographs early on. I'm going through this stage now and going through a lot of my um, Lightroom catalogs, which is how I how I um, organise my photographs. And I'm actually going through and doing a bit of tidying up at the moment. And and there's a lot of rubbish in there. And I just wish. You know, if, if a tip for anyone listening to this podcast would be if, if you're looking to create a beautiful landscape image, you know, great composition, strong composition, interesting subject, and just gorgeous light will have it, you know, stand out and have it be a beautiful image that hopefully you enjoy and that others do too. So it's coming down to the basics, isn't it, really? It's not um, HDR or funky filters that are going over the top. It's 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 really about the basics. And look, I know with portrait photography, there's something else as well that I'm attracted to, and it's the X factor. It's the soul of the the portrait. Is there a soul to a landscape, and can you capture that? Wow, wow, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I think there is. I think there's a soul. Um, I think it's. I think it's a, a magic that, that happens um, occasionally when you're out photographing where everything just comes together. You might be, it's often just right place, right time. You know, I, I think that. Mm. Is it right place, right time though, really? Um, because I know you may be in your life, because I, I know with portrait photography, there is a right place, right time, yeah. right light. You get one every right. 10 years as a portrait photographer, where you just happen to be, just be there. But if you don't have the the skills to back it up, you're not going to see it. So I think kind of you saying that, I think you're almost underselling, you know. I tend to. D- 
when you've done it yeah. for 20 years, or is it 20 years you've been a landscaper 20, longer? 22 odd years that I've been on. Yeah, right. Do you, do you think it's uh, you recognise no. the magical light? Would you recognise that that image that we're talking about yeah. with the soul uh, as a as a newbie two years um, in? Probably not. I tend to. You're quite right. I tend to under, understate or underestimate um, those twenty two years of experience that have it be that I can go out and identify that and capture that and and know that I. I'd probably be happy with what I get rather than being disappointed because I haven't seen it or I haven't, you know, uh, reacted quickly enough or I haven't had the right, you know, settings on my camera, all those sorts of things. I'm, I very much sort of understate that in that regard. And it's only because I guess it's when I start teaching photography, you know, to my students through my own workshops that I realize how much I have picked up over the years and how much I do have to share with others. Although, I guess, um, like many other artists, I tend to um, still think I have a long way to go and still feel I have a lot to learn. Which yeah, is yeah. I think we all feel like that. <laughs> we do. Uh, you can, you can't engaged help it. in photography, you know. Like uh, I'm one of these type A personalities who get bored very easily, and so and I don't do mm. nothing very well. And so, you know, if photography hadn't challenged me for all these years and and had me still feel that there's a lot to learn i wouldn't be doing it now yeah yeah i agree um let's get back to this connecting with landscapes because it's like it is the thing that you can go out and i know um i can say that my landscape photography is very very basic because I feel a connection to the land. It's like I'm sitting here amongst all the trees now as I'm speaking to you and I love it and I appreciate it. I just don't have right. an eye for it to photograph yeah. it, right? And that's not where I've focused my attention. Um, but I know when I'm taking a portrait that to me the connection is yes. everything. It's everything above the, the lighting, the composition. It's that It's that extra something. And I work so hard to get that connection as a landscape photographer, what is it that you do to to connect with that landscape and to to, to really to draw? Because th there is that there is that soul that I see in your images and that connection with the land and that sort of awe. It, th there is that sense of awe when I look in, at your images, right? Thank you. So, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing for that? What is? I mean. It's hard to answer, I know, but is there something that, like, because I've, I've interviewed other landscape photographers that say that they'll they'll go to a location and they'll pay that location respect and they'll sit with the land before they pick up the camera. Do you have some sort of um, ritual that when you get to a new location that you'll follow to 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 to, to be in that You're moment? Probably like me to say yes, wouldn't you? I I want you to say <laughs> whatever know. you. I'm um, going to say. I don't tend to read too much into that other than I'm sure there's a connection and there's an energy and there's places that I go to, say, like I was in Dead Flay in Namibia recently with all those dead trees surrounded by the round, you know, the beautiful red sand dunes. And there's places that yeah. I do go where I, I actually want to spend more time just observing and looking rather than taking photos. And and that to yep. me is far more spiritual and energetic and, and, and a deeper meaning than just simply feeling like I have to run around and take a lot of photographs before the light disappears. Um, and so yep. I do 
I do feel you're quite right that in in essence the best landscape photographs I'll take are the ones where I have felt really in touch with what's going on around me. Um, I really am passionate about what I'm photographing. Obviously, that's a key to any photograph that you take, regardless of whether it's landscapes or not. I think at the end of the day, if you can be passionate about what you're photographing, that that will hopefully shine through in your photographs. And so um, I, I do like going to places that I actually enjoy photographing as well because I will see yep. the beauty in the landscape whether it be a place that I've been already or whether it be a place that's new to me, um, I, I love getting excited about seeing something that's really interesting and then doing my best to capture that in a way that, that does it justice, you know, um, and, and yeah. challenging myself creatively to see see the photographs, you know, beyond what is obvious. And that's why I, think I love my aerial yeah. landscape photography so much is because it's aerial abstract landscape photography. It's not taking general photos that you might, you know, take with your iPhone and, and that sort of viewpoint. It's more pointing downwards and looking for unusual shapes and patterns and colour lines, all sorts of things that I can then create something that feels more like a, a piece of art rather than just a, a, a record of a moment. Yeah, they, they are like a piece of art. But then there's also ones where you do obviously recognise the, the landscape. And is it like the majority of your work, is it aerial or are you equally taking images from the ground? Yeah, I, I do mostly aerials these days. I think um, at the end of the day, um, I've spent 15 years or so photographing the Australian landscape from the ground um, where I was using a specialist panoramic film camera and... I really enjoyed that and I love a lot of the photographs that I, I took with that camera. But these days I think um, that to me is a little, it feels a little passe. It feels like, okay, I've done that. I need to now find something else to shoot that challenges me. And, and so therefore right. I, I'm really delving into that aerial landscape photography. When you're doing your aerial photography, what's your prepara preparation and uh, and how can uh, anyone that's listening that's maybe new to uh, landscape photography, what, what are some tips you can give in terms of uh, shooting and preparing for a landscape shoot? Are you using any particular apps to work out where your light's going to be? What, what's your um, process? Light is important, obviously, um, determining what time of day for the location, sometimes the late morning or the sorry, the the, the early morning, uh, you know, the late afternoon light works for capturing soft light and shadows. Um, but then a lot of the time, shooting um, with the the sun up and having that flat lighting in inverted commas can work very well too, because it penetrates in through say water when you're flying over, you know, some beautiful oh, space, for example. Yes. So, we we fly yep. over those areas, coastal areas, often you know in the middle of the day or mid morning, mid afternoon, that sort of thing. Um, it's 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 kind of like turning landscape photography on its head because it, it, more often than not, you need a lot of light in order to take good aerial photographs because you're in a plane or a helicopter, having to shoot at a thousandth of a second or higher, and you're not wanting to use higher ISOs, so you really do need quite a bit of light to be able to get your thousandths of a second at F, you know, 5.6 at F8 and an ISO 200 ideally. 
so you've got a nice clear mm. picture obviously with your low ISO and and whilst you know you wouldn't necessarily need to have a lot of depth of field with your aperture we all know that the best um, you know the best apertures are the clearest and sharpest ones through most lenses are around the f8 so you're trying to aim for that f8 but also you need to have a, a sharp you know a fast shutter speed to get to not have the the movement in the plane or the helicopter that you're in so um i look to uh with research look at you know places through hashtags on instagram i follow other people whose work i admire and um you get to sort of know a place and perhaps what it could produce for you then to me i just leave it at that i i might look at somebody's work and go wow that looks like an interesting place to go but i don't want to spend too much time looking at their work or anyone else's because i want to be able to discover it for myself and and because i've got that photographic memory um I will. I would. I rarely like to sort of feel like I'm going to copy or reference their work. I'd like to think that I'm going and creating something that that looks good myself. So just on that, how many of the uh, landscape, the aerials that you're doing could be? And I'm going to use the term happy accident, but we've already discussed the fact that there are no accidents and. You obviously have the skills to recognise the great shot, but how many of those are like that you've stumbled on that and how exciting is oh, that? When, so exciting. When you, oh, so yeah. good. You know, like um, I've done a, a fair bit of work up at Lake Eyre, which is Australia's largest lake. It's in the middle of, you know, the country. It's in the desert. Uh, for those who don't mm. know where Lake Eyre is and um, it's just recently flooded with some rain that fell hundreds of kilometres away and, uh, and I've spent... Um, over 50 hours flying over that lake in in the last 12 months wow. or so, and um, that's really exciting to go back and see the the lake change in so many different ways. Go over parts that I've seen already, but then discovering new parts of it, such as these amazing natural springs that come up through the salt um, surface and then create these amazing patterns in the landscape. And it's not something that I knew existed up until um, May of this year. So well, to find find that you know in inverted commas I'm I'm sure I'm not the first to photograph it but that for myself yeah. is really exciting because it's it's just you know uncovered another part of the lake that I didn't know existed in the first place and something that I haven't seen other photographers shoot before so I like the idea of being able to capture something unique but that's becoming increasingly difficult with just you know the amount of images out there on social media and online these days and the amount of photographers out there doing fantastic work so i i do like the idea of getting something unique but um it doesn't happen uh a lot of the time i love the the tip about having the 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 sun up so it's lighting the water so that you can see through to the bottom that just makes perfect sense um but obviously how do you avoid the shadow of the plane in the um, shot? Often you're up so high uh, that it, you can rarely see it. And and because right. what we do is we'll fly over certain locations and then if we see something that we like, um, we, the Royal We, um, we'll do an orbit. So we'll get the pilot to tip the plane on about a 45-degree angle, do a loop or an orbit, a circle in the air, and, and obviously, um, you'll only see your shadow at a certain part of that, that look or that orbit. Right. And therefore, rarely do you, you think to yourself, oh, God, the plane shadow's in the shot. 
I really wish it wasn't there. It's often so small in the in the shot anyway that it wouldn't take much just to clone it out. So I've rarely had that problem where I've said, you know, oh, that would have been a great photo had not the um, shadow of the plane been in it. All right. Um, now, I'm not sure if I asked you this question when I met you, but why not just get a drone to take these shots? Yeah, I probably um, did. <laughs> I think I did, yeah, and I remember the reply uh, now. <laughs> Great. Um, it's just not appropriate for the work that I'm trying to do because of many different reasons, and I'll, I'll go through them quickly now. One is the quality. Um, you can buy commercial drones where you could strap my you know big medium format camera to it, and you'd, you'd be up some shots. Really? Yeah, you can buy drones like What a beast. It is a beast. Wow. It's, um, you know, it's got eight rotors on it and uh, cost you oh at least God. 10 grand. Um, but then you need two pilots to fly it, one to pilot the drone and then the other person to operate the camera. Um, the, the second is, um, you know, commercial drones or, or I guess, you know, your, your drones that you buy off the shelf, um, they, they don't have the quality at the moment to be able to capture images that are large enough for me to be able to display. So with all of my aerial abstract landscape photographs, I sell them as limited edition prints, one of 10. And print size, minimum yep. print size is 150 centimetres by 100, 120 wow. centimetres. So they're a metre and a half by 1.2 metres. And so, you know, they're big pieces and you just won't get that quality out of a, a drone that you buy off the shelf at the moment. Um, the other thing is, yeah. you know, uh, they only can go to 400 feet. A lot of the time we're flying it to or 3,000 feet, so you just can't take the drone high enough. Right. And you can't take yep. it far enough. Um, when we go to Lake Eyre and we're doing those flights over that huge, expansive salt lake in the middle of nowhere, um, we're doing flights that cover 700 kilometres in three and a half hours duration. So, again, a drone can yep. go, you know, seven kilometres and, and go for about half an hour, and that's it. So... There's many restrictions, and, and there's many photographers doing great work with drones. Um, just for a lot of the work that I do, it's just not viable. Because you're that high, that's why you're getting those beautiful abstract uh, shots. And, it, like, the thing that I noticed about your images is, like, you can see that um, the pattern of nature is, like, repeated in the human body. There's images that I see, they look like, like when I look at, um, uh, like, a, a river system, it, it it looks like yes, arteries. Um, there's many that um, I, I show at even camera clubs and I ask people, what do you, what does this look like to you? And, and it's really interesting to hear the responses. A lot of it can be um, anatomical, you know, where, where it represents, um, you know, a part of the body, you know, uh, very yeah. biological in a sense. It could be representing valves of the heart or arteries or all sorts of things, teeth. I mean, there's, I mean, I'm not yep. very good at seeing that sort of stuff, but other people do. They kind of look at one of my images and they go, oh, my God, that looks like, you know, a bird and look at it, it's a dragon and all sorts of things. Um, I don't care what people see in them at the end of the day. Um, I just love being able to create something that's, that's you know, quite abstract that people look at and wonder, is it a painting or a photograph? And, okay, it's a photograph. Yeah. Like, what the hell am I looking at? Like, what have you done to it? Often people ask, and I say nothing, it's just come straight out of the camera. That's nature just providing such a beautiful um, pattern that uh, I, my job is relatively easy. Yeah. Um, so with um, aerial and landscape photography, are, are there trends 
in terms of like what's groovy at the moment or lighting styles and are you kind of um, giving a tip to those trends and, and adding some in or are you just kind of continuing to stick with your own yeah, style? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, there, there are certain trends that I see running through landscape photography and aerial photography. Um, for landscape photography, we, we've sort of gone through that HDR phase, thank goodness. Uh, there's, there was mm. that trend for a while there where, um, you know, your, your very long exposures using in neutral density filters, 10-stop neutral density filters and having waves and seascapes very much, you know, blurred and, and, and milky and what have you. And I don't mind those at all either. Um, I think we've gone through a bit of a stage now where um, backlighting the landscape and using some beautiful soft backlighting late in the late in the day or early in the morning can work very well. And I've been experimenting there with a bit of that myself. I think um, uh, a photographer friend of mine said today that I think that's been made more possible because of the technology we have. You know, in the days of using slide film, um, you just get so little dynamic range that you wouldn't get the detail in the shadows to be able to create an image like that. So digital's made that really possible. With aerial photography, um, there's just been such a renaissance of that in in recent years due to the due to drones, um, and, and that's yeah. brilliant. You know, um, it's such a unique way of looking at the landscape. And what I'm finding here in Australia is that we have quite a few very, very good aerial photographers who are doing great work, and I think what we're all doing is trying to outdo each other. Uh, That's great, it is, though, isn't brilliant. it? You know, like we seriously have half a dozen of brilliant aerial landscape photographers, some of the best in the world, I'd like to say, because um, of, of what they're producing and the places they're getting to create these amazing images. And so I just think there's a, a, a renaissance in that area for the moment and how long it lasts, who knows. But um, it, it's just such a unique way of, of showing off the landscape. Fantastic. All right. I, I just want to ask you about your yep. gear of choice. So um, you said you're shooting medium format. What, I've got what a Pentax 645Z, which is a 50 megapixel medium format digital camera. It's been around about four or five years now. I'm kind of waiting for them to upgrade it to a mirrorless, you know, 100 megapixel like uh, Fuji. Yeah, like Fuji. Yeah, um, I, I yeah. like it because, you know, I picked up, I've, I've drowned one already and I've, I've second one thank how'd you drown it like to drop out of a plane no it should have um really it would have been a better story i was i was running a light (laughs) painting workshop here on the peninsula um a couple of years ago and uh we were out late at night on a pier over the water a very rickety narrow pier over the water and Mm. um one of my tripod legs failed uh glass broke and uh i'd let go of the tripod for a brief second um and of course, you know what happened is that the next thing I know is that my camera and tripod are in the water, illuminating, um, you know, the fish in Port Phillip Bay. And so I immediately dived in and grabbed it, uh, and it was gone because of the salt water. Yeah, that's what salt, that's what uh, insurance is good for. But um, you know, yeah, it's the yes. idiot clause. My insurance company yeah. told me about it. I'm not great with my <laughs> gear. I tend to sort of uh, not treat it as well as I probably could, but. Um, I've bought both of my Pentax secondhand, so it just makes it very affordable to buy. Um, and and the lenses that I use are old film lenses as well. So, yeah. Really? Yeah, you can pick wow. it up. 
you can pick up a whole kit to be relatively cheap, not spending tens of thousands of dollars and get amazing results. Yeah. And the, the clarity from the photographs is absolutely incredible. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, that's amazing. So is there a, um, a focal yeah. length of, of, of choice question. that you I'm like to work with? I'm glad you asked that because I was about to say that as well, but I, I ran out of breath. Um, so I tell people that if they're going to shoot aerials, the 24 to sort of 70 or 24 to 105 is the ideal lens to use. You don't need to go too wide because otherwise you end up, you know, everything's just so far away because you're high enough anyway that what you really need to do mm. is bring everything a bit closer to you rather than trying to push it all the way with a wide angle. And then, so right. I actually shoot with a fixed prime lens. I've got a, a 75 mil lens, which in medium format um, equates, well, in, in digital SLR, you know, 35 mil format, Equates to about a 60 mil lens. Um, right. So it's almost like yeah, a standard. Yeah, exactly. And and the beauty of that is I've tried using zoom lenses with that camera and I find that I'm a purist. So what I like to do is I like to see through the camera what I'd like to create as a finished product and capture that without having to crop. I kind of like the idea of creating beautiful, pretty pictures in camera. And I've always been that way. And so I like to see the photograph before I take it. And then I like to just bring it into my computer, process it without having to fiddle too much with it, literally. So there's not a lot there's of post-production You'd be that amazed. Goes on. Um, stuff that you've seen yeah. and that others would have seen, I would have literally spent no more than two minutes per photograph on post-production. So That's amazing. So you really are just getting it, perfecting it, and and you use you're not using yeah. any filters, NDs, or anything no, like that. Or I'm trying to get this so this shutter speed fast enough that you can, you know, use a thousandth of a second without compromising your ISO or your aperture. So at the end of the day, you know, you can't use ND filters, polarizing filters, etc. You're just shooting raw, you know, uh, a raw format yeah. photograph, 50 megapixels. It's about 24 by 36 inches. Um, I bring it into Lightroom, I do a bit of dehaze, um, contrast, maybe a bit of saturation just to tease out the colour that's already there. I mean, it's a raw file, so it tends to look really flat when you when you first look. Particularly yeah. in places like Lake Air that might not have a lot of colour, it's more about shape and texture, so you really do need to um, work it pretty hard with the dehaze and contrast, for example, or sliding the black slider down to the left or the white slider to the right. But... But I'm, I'm pretty good in that I can look at a photograph and know exactly what needs to be done to it relatively quickly. So I, I don't like to stuff around with it too much. Um, and, and often I'll process a series of photographs just by working the first image in that series and then syncing the settings to all the other photographs in that series so that they all end up looking, you know, great and then just picking the best one out of that series. Fantastic. So that's the aerials. What about when you're on the land? Is there a, a different approach? Obviously, using are you preferring to shoot wider? Are you still using the same camera? Using, what what are you doing when you're yeah, shooting on the land? Yeah, still using the same camera, just using a 35 mil lens, which is equivalent of about a 28 in in 35 format. Right. And um, and then and then I'll often stitch panoramics together, for example, because. My all right, so you'd yeah. like to do the panoramic. And are you low to the ground? Do you like to be um, eye level? Eye where, level. where are you Just sitting eye level the camera? Is probably where I'm at most yep. of the time. If I can get up a bit higher, I will. But again, it just depends on what I'm shooting, for example. Right. So eye level for you, 
uh, is like, what are you, yeah. like six foot? Yeah, so you're quite high oh, up. Reasonably so, I guess. <laughs> so you like that, but you you're always like to have that elevated I view, I guess, of the, the landscape. Being, I teach this to my students, is that um, I think the misconception sometimes with shooting with a wide-angle lens and shooting landscapes is that if it gets down low and get close to your subject, you'll have a really interesting, strong foreground. And I'm, I'm all for having strong mm-hmm. foregrounds, but... The problem is that when you get low, you're actually flattening the landscape out, and so you don't get that middle ground. You'll often see with the foreground and the background, but you won't see the middle ground. So you kind of want to tilt the landscape towards you, um, and then you, by, you can do that by obviously being up a little higher, so not dropping the tripod legs down too low to the ground. You want to most 99% of the time, I'm, I'm just shooting at eye level. You're the first person that said that. Everyone else is on the right. ground, low. Get down low. I don't know. That's yeah. what everyone said. So it's it's good to have or mid level or and and you're up high and you're the first person that's pointed out that fact right. about the middle ground. So that's I'm good. Very that's great. On looking at my photographs <laughs> and and analysing first where where the best spot to be is. You know, like how close do I need to be to that rock? You know, in the foreground and then if I stand here. Um, and I get down lower, how does that change the elements in the shot and how they interact with one another? You know, is there going to be overlap between that rock in the foreground and the other parts in the middle ground? You know, things like that. And I teach my students this a lot of the time, not just to lock up at a place and just plant the tripod where it looks good. You've got to identify the key elements in the landscape in order to then have impact for the photograph, but then also to make sure they're all working in together to complement each other, not competing against each other. How does that look in terms of when you get there? Are you doing that through the camera or are you doing that uh, through your eyes and maybe just using your hands no, to mask it out? No, I don't even use my hands. I kind of just, I just look and, and observe and I think I get, I think I'd get too distracted with the camera if I had it up to my eye all the time. I like that wide field of view with my own eyes just to be able to see the landscape, analyse it and then, and then determine where the best spot is to be. And are you... Tippy, going on tippy toes and crouching down slightly to, yep. to see the difference in what happens yep, with absolutely. the middle ground. Time and I, mm. I love teaching my students about that too because it, again, it's new to them and they go, "Oh right, okay, yeah, I can see that. I never would have thought of that." And and I love being able to show people that that's the sorts of things they can consider because then that might be the one percent that has their photograph be an okay photograph to being a really good photograph because all they've done is rather than crouching down low, they've stood up. Or rather than standing, um, you know, down low here, they've got up on the rock right next to them there and they've got a whole different view of the world and it's just made it look so much better. And when you're doing landscapes on the ground, is there a preferred uh, position of the sun for you? Uh, Do you like it to be behind, to the side? Um, It depends on what I'm shooting. Um, As I said earlier, I'm kind of getting into that backlighting that – kind of steered yeah. away from for a while. Um, I like side lighting too because it often brings out a lot of texture in the landscape as well, whether it be rocks, um, you know, patterns on a beach, uh, bark on a tree, things like that. It often works best when it's side lit. So um, I, I even find when I'm shooting my aerial stuff that the backlighting can often bring out texture on a lake bed that when you think to yourself, oh, if I get around the front and I get around that where the sun is is lighting it from the behind me, 
and the subject is front lit, that'll make it look better, where in fact it can sometimes lose the the overall object and the overall texture and shape of the, of what you're trying to photograph altogether. So um, it's interesting. I don't think there's any hard and fast rules behind it all. I just think it uh, is a matter of what does the landscape justice. Is there an, like with portrait photography, midday sun, putting someone out there and trying to get a photo, it's just like, yeah. it's hard unless you know how to tilt the head and all of that. Is there a same um, scenario with landscape photography that you found that it just like, it's best to avoid these these yeah. hours to shoot landscapes? Yeah, it's going to be tough it's for you. interesting point. I mean, here in, we're in winter here in Australia uh, and, you know, we live sort of down south. If you're looking at a map of Australia, we're, we're down, you know, near the bottom. And that means that the sun is quite low to the horizon at the moment, which means that during the day here, it's my favourite time to shoot this time of year, sort of April, um, autumn, winter here on the Mornington Peninsula where I live is my favourite time to shoot because you can pretty much shoot all day. Um, in the summer, it's horrible. You've got like an hour at the start of the day, an hour at the end of the day because the, the light during the middle of the day is just so harsh for those who haven't experienced the Australian summer, I mean, it really is a pretty bright white light, um, particularly in Perth, for example, you know, over the other side of the country, I've noticed that their summer light is just so bright. I'd hate to be a landscape photographer uh, trying to shoot landscapes on the ground over there because um, in summer, because you just get no time at all. Mm. So, this time of the year is great for you when you've got the sun low yep. in the horizon. You, you'd like yeah, to work like that. Yeah, it's just like a beautiful that. soft light. You know, as we started out by saying, um, you know, the quality of the light that you're shooting with on a landscape can just make all the difference. And so if you've got a beautiful yeah. soft golden light, I mean, that can just add so much. It is a beautiful time of the year. It's, it's one of my favourite as well, just for looking yep. at the light as well. Um, all right, let's, um, let's talk about – so you – Create all these beautiful images, and now you've uh, also this is it this year that you set up your gallery on the morning yeah, last year. So November last year we launched yep. uh, a gallery just in the main shopping strip here on the peninsula. Um, it's quite popular with locals and tourists to come down. Um, yeah, called what's what's called Main Street Mornington, and um and do some shopping and and look at art galleries and, and other places, you know, cafe. There's a strong cafe culture down there as well. It's a very cool um, – I, lo I love it down there. I think it's it's a really uh, arty community as well, a lot of artists down there, and it's just a beautiful yeah. part of Melbourne. So you've got the gallery in there, and, and are, you, are you doing your own I'm prints? not at the moment. I would like to, um, uh, mm. more for the purpose that it would probably be a, a little bit cheaper than what we – are paying now in order to somebody else do it. Yeah. Um, we just don't produce enough prints at the moment to justify doing our own printing. Um, so right. early days yet, I'd like to think that, you know, further down the track that we will be doing our own printing and, uh, you know, we, we print on this beautiful cotton rag paper that is a beautiful wow. texture. Um, it's, you know, it's a 300 GSM paper, so it's quite a thick paper. Um, it looks lovely under under glass, for example, when we frame it in a box frame, things like that. But um, mm. what we do do is that we support a local printer and framer who do it all in-house. And so we like the idea of producing that here on the peninsula and supporting local business. And, and it's a very sort of community-minded um, focus down here on the peninsula. So if we can 
we we do it anyway, but it's it's a good selling tool as well for us to say, hey, this is this is um, you know produced here on the peninsula as well. So, what tips would you have for emerging photographers, even established photographers who are out there shooting their landscape photography and they're thinking about um, selling some yeah. anywhere around the world? What What would you have as a suggestion of a way to get started of getting that work out there? Because I know uh, on your website, uh, tomputt.com, that like it's all beautifully laid out it's easy to find the images you've got limited editions there's drop down menus with choices of print sizes and um even the the what it's printed on so but if you're just starting out like what, what are some ways that you can get out there in the community and get recognized and maybe start selling I, images i what, think what the best recommend? way is um finding some local markets that you can have a stall at whereby you could match some prints up, like you can buy plenty of um, pre-made or pre-cut mats that you could slide your images into um, that you could then put in a plastic sleeve and, you know, sign the mount board, for example, and, and just send something really well yeah. in that regard and, and not sell it for, you know, a fortune. Um, you know, might sell it for $30, $40 as an A4 photograph. Right. Um but it's a start, you know what I mean? I think at the end of the day, we've all got to start somewhere. And if you look to sell your art, yeah. there's plenty of people out there, you know, who are doing that, but there's plenty of people out there who want to buy that as well. And so they like the idea yes. of picking something up from a local photographer or an artist who's, um, you know, taking the time and effort to create that and put that all together and stand at a stall at a market on a weekend, things like that. Um, from there, um, Wow, um, you know, you can obviously go to galleries and and have an exhibition for a gallery. Um, I'm I'm a little bit wary of that. I think I think artists tend to overstate how many photographs they might sell through that process. It's a costly mm. exercise because you're obviously having to produce and, and pay for the prints and to be printed and framed. The galleries do yeah. tend to take a fair chunk of commission as well these days. And then I, I just let me educate you on this because I, I do love the idea of business of photography just as much as creating photographs. Yep. If you've got a gallery that's taking 50% commission on any sales of an exhibition that you might have there, that leaves you with 50%. We pay 10% GST tax here in Australia, so that leaves you with yep. 40 you're generally going to pay anywhere from 20 to 30% cost of goods being the cost to obviously have the photograph printed and framed. So if that's low yep. at 20%, you've only been left with 20% profit out of the sale price of that photograph for yourself. So it's not a lot. It's not going to be a huge money-making exercise for you, but it's something that it's a good process to go through. It's very exciting to have your own exhibition and um and sell some art as well and you'll be actually surprised if you're producing good quality work um you know it doesn't have to be award-winning amazing the best in the world if you're producing good quality work you'll be amazed at how many people are actually looking for that to put on their walls yeah and and I mean, there are alternatives to the galleries. There's like plenty of cafes with empty wall space that you can absolutely. Also, um, have you, you never know where there? that might lead. I haven't had great success in selling artwork through cafes because people are generally there more to, um, you know, to eat and socialise rather than buy art. But who's not to say that you put a whole lot of postcards there and somebody just happens to pick it up and check out your website when they get home and buy something off your website, for example. 
you know, because yes, they've seen your artwork exactly. on the wall already and they've gone, oh, that looks quite nice. Oh, I'll pick up this card. I, I'm not interested in buying it right now. And then all of a sudden you make a sale. I, I would just encourage people if they're going to sell their own landscape photography, it's not going to happen overnight. It's a, it's a, it's a, not a numbers game. It's more a, a time frame. It's, it's, it's a patience yep. thing. You've just got to be patient. You know, yep. not everybody's out there looking to put landscape, landscape photographs on their wall. Um, but there's plenty of people looking. So you've just got to find that market and, and, you know, keep persisting and know that, um, people might not buy straight away, but they may well come back and buy from you in the future. If you stay there and you're still there and they get to know you and they get to know your story, which is just as important as the image, I think, when they hear, oh, look, that's Tom, and he goes out and, you know, and then they've seen you and they've asked you about, well, what was it like when yeah. you went to Lake Air this time? And, and, you know, and then they're attached to the story as well and it means something and they're like, no, I really like that image now. I'm going to um Yeah, you're so right. It. Um, it is a lot about the story. Um, I think at the end of the day, um, if people can – love the piece because they connect with it in one way, shape or form, but then they can also tell people about the story. You know, just imagine that they've purchased a piece of art from you. They've had, they've got some friends coming over for dinner. All of a sudden, you know, they're walking the door, the friends walk in the door. Oh, wow, that's new, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Let me tell you about this photograph that was purchased. Yeah. I bought it from this local photographer down in Main Street, Mornington. He's amazing. He actually sold me the piece himself. He was in the gallery the day I bought it told me all about yeah. this photograph let me tell you about how he created it that's just so important it is it's like you know when you go to the farmer's market to buy the fruit and you meet the farmer that you know and uh this is this is how uh he grew the uh the cherries or we, yeah it's all of that the story is so important do you find that um if you're with your uh selling the images online you've got more of an opportunity to present that story or um, um we probably don't do that as well as we could in the sense that i haven't written a lot of stories to go with the photographs, I actually like telling it more myself in person. Um, yeah. Although, um, you know, we haven't had a great success in selling the art online, to online. be honest. I'd like to say that we, we sell thousands a week, but um, one of the reasons we opened the gallery is because I think people want to see that physical product, um, the wow factor. Yes. Um, I just don't know. I'm sure there's lots of people that buy art online, but it's probably not at the – price point that we're selling our art at either either our, yeah because what what's a like an average uh price yeah. for one of your prints they're not um no not that's budget. the thing and so you know if people if they were budget i'm sure we'd move a hell of a lot more because people um would have less or lower risk of buying it you know they might not have seen me they might not have know the quality but they go you know what we're only spending two or three hundred dollars and if we don't like it well we've only mm. spent a couple hundred bucks What's ours start at yep. nineteen fifty, so just under two thousand dollars. Yep. Um, our limited editions um around the eight thousand dollar mark because they're only one of ten, and so yeah, they're not they're not cheap, and therefore I think people need to see that you're an established artist, or at least that you're reputable. You've got a you've got a gallery, for example. Um, they can come down and see the physical product, things like that. Hmm. And with the with the prints, uh, so you, you're sending them out, Tom. But like, just to prepare the prints, uh, the images to to be printed. Like, I get this question all the time um, from photographers who was like, "Okay, so what I see on the screen 
is never what I get on the print and it's right. driving me up the wall. Have you got any tips to uh, rectify that? Obviously, you could have, <laughs> obviously, um, a paper profile, you know, from the printer in order to be able to load that in your computer so that you can match um, your, your what you see on your screen to what they see. Um, I use Mac computers and I, I guess I've been really fortunate in a sense that um, what I've seen on my screen and what the printer sees or what they print out is often a very good match. I, I actually um, insist with my printer now that they do a test strip for everything that I have printed with them so that they don't go and print this big print and I come down and I look at it yeah. and I go, actually, that's not anything like what it should. I just um, prepare it for print, which means that I resize it in Photoshop, um, sharpen it, um, have it looking brilliant on my computer. They produce a print, you know, at scale or at size that they're going to print it. So they might take a slither, you know, a section out of yes through the middle, through the middle. Whatever, you know, print that yep. at one meter high because it's a, you know, a one meter high print. And then I can look at that and go, yeah, no, the color look, looks fine. Um, you know, go ahead and print or it looks a bit too warm or a bit too cool or whatever. Adjustments need to be made, but um, rarely does it need that to occur. I'm, I'm, I found that we've got a good connection there. And are you compensating at all for the fact that your screen's backlit and also the fact that the uh, the print will take a bit of the um, – you will lose yep. a bit of brightness yep. in the print? Are you compensating for that? Have you created some sort of profile or a tweak that you I, use? The best tip I can give people is um, just don't edit in a brightly lit room because obviously you're going to turn up the brightness of your screen um, and, and your your – what you're seeing on the screen is going to be way brighter than what the, um, you know, the print comes out at. I think the most common problem that people have is that they go, you know, it looked great on my screen, but it looks like way dark when I come to print it because the brightness of the screen's turned up way high. So I like to edit in a sort of semi-dark or darkened room. I turn the brightness of the screen down to about half, and then I carefully look at my histogram as well. I mean, often you can look at a photograph on a computer screen and it looks bright and beautiful and then you look at histogram and it's you know a stop or two under so you just know those whites aren't yep. going to be white when you come to print it so knowing how to read a histogram and how to correct your photograph in order to get you know your whites looking white for example i think is key mm. and is this all stuff that you're yeah, teaching yeah i teach this Tom? all in my workshops as well yeah yeah fantastic it feels so, pretty obvious um, and basic but i guess you know you learn a lot through trial and error and you you make all the mistakes and then people, um, you know, that's why they come on the workshops because they want to learn from you and you've made some of the mistakes so hopefully they don't make them themselves. Well, it's probably one of the, the biggest questions we get and one of the biggest frustrations and, you know, just that, that little tip alone of like don't, don't just get the, the print done straight up. Do, do the test print. Uh, and I even suggest you do um, like we used to do in the dark room. We do the step test print where you'd have uh, the different exposures. Yeah. So you might want to adjust your brightness, uh, you know, half a quarter of a stop uh, and do it across the print and then print it out so yes. you can see uh, exactly which exposure is going to yeah, be the best. Um, all right. Amazing. Uh, that, that's uh it's been fantastic chatting to you uh, today, Tom. Is uh, so. Where can people find you? And where, like, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've got coming up this year? Because you've got some phenomenal <laughs> um, workshops to some. I'm like, going, I, I want to go there. I want to go I there. What's to, coming up? Sometimes for you? I get so confused about what I'm doing, and that sounds very arrogant. That um, 
I have to look on my own website to see where I'm going next. Um, so for this year, for example, I've already been to um, Sweden, Russia, Africa, um, twice. Already? Yes, twice to um, Lake Air, once to Shark Bay um, and far north Queensland. So um, it's been busy already and I'm so thankful for, you know, the various people who come on my workshops who um, support them so well. Um, we go up to the snow. We do an annual snow photography workshop up at Mount Hotham Dinner Plains, so we're going up there next week. Mm. I'm really looking forward to that because we've had some good dump of snow in the last uh, week or so. Um, we we I love New Zealand, and so I love getting there as often as possible. We have a South Island New Zealand workshop coming up in August. Back to Shark Bay um, in August as well for an aerial photography workshop, and then back to Lake Eyre in September again to do another aerial photography workshop. Um, so that sort of rounds out the year, and then next year places like Lake Baikal in Russia and Patagonia in April and, and Iceland, we're running an aerial photography workshop in Iceland um, next year and maybe a trip or two to Africa as well. So there's lots, and it's all on the website there at tomputt.com, and then if people are wanting to find me on Facebook, it's just Tom Putt Gallery. And on Instagram, I'm under Tom Putt Photo. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Tom. It's been amazing chatting to you. And I'll see you at the end of the year. Yeah, in, looking in forward Bright. to it. Thanks, Gina. Thanks for having me. Thank you. There you go. Photographer Tom Putt. Hope you got some really good tips out of that. So what's happening with you in the coming week, Gina? Are you, are you watching any Netflix yourself or, you know, reading any good books or anything like that? I have to tell you what happened, Val, that I'm a bit what concerned happened? about. Um, my what? iPhone is possessed. My iPhone's possessed too, but right. from, probably for different reasons. I'm actually, it's got a crucifix on it right now and I'm seriously hmm. considering calling a priest. It go, and okay. is this a thing? Uh, you should get oh, the hot priest from Fleabag. Oh, my God, yes. There's an oh, episode. <laughs> I haven't gotten to that part yet. But, but <laughs> like, this is what it does. Does yours do this? Because it just, um, mm-hmm. uh, say I want to listen to a podcast. It will um, fast forward, rep- rep- go at one speed, one and a half. You know how you can f- make them faster? I'm not touching the screen at all. It's mm. just sitting on the bench. Mm. It'll it'll flip to another podcast. It'll go back mm. to another podcast. It'll flip to mm. another one. It'll rewind. It'll fast forward. It'll it'll speed up the mm. um and slow down. Does yours do that? No, mine's possessed and but exhibits different symptoms. And it turns and then Siri will say, "Is there any who do you want to call?" And and then oh, yeah. expletive, expletive, expletive is what I say to Siri, right? Which <laughs> yeah. do you know that when you do that, they, it comes up on the screen. It's like <laughs> I I I'm searching for expletive, expletive, expletive because yes. it's oh, so God. frustrating, and I and I don't know what to do. Does yours do that? No, but my partner's phone. Siri talks to him all the time. But why? Even just when randomly? He's not talking to her. Yeah, like everything, everyone's like, we're not even saying anything, and Siri will start talking to him. No. Yeah. It's kind of spooky. Like, ser- like ser- seriously, like it, it, we're not even saying anything, and she'll just say, she'll just say some random thing. It is quite bizarre. And my the voices are spooky. Is well, it's just Siri's voice. Um, 
my phone, um, there's a friend of mine, Katrina, she has a birthday on a particular day, but every, it, like constantly Siri is telling me it's her birthday and it, it it's even in my diary. It's so-and-so's birthday, Katrina, so-and-so's birthday. And I, I realized this when I, you know, message and went, oh my God, I forgot your birthday. And she said it was three weeks ago. And I went, I thought it was, I was even at your party, wasn't I? Oh my God. <laughs> and every, like then a week later, it'd be her birthday. Three weeks later, it's a birthday. Four weeks later, it's a birthday. One week later, it's a birthday. And so I message her every, I sh- screenshot it and I show it to her, I message her every time. And she thinks it's, she thinks that my, my diary, well, that my iPhone is either obsessed or possessed. And it is because it's it's literally an entry in my diary each time. All right, and it happens every couple of weeks. Or, and it's but it, there's no pattern to it. It's it's just random. Oh well, mine this this is mine's like that. And then I've got the I've got um those Bluetooth speakers that yeah. um just turn on. So there is nothing more skip because the voice is really creepy. But so it's uh, yeah, the that, dead of the night yeah. and I just hear <laughs> the Bluetooth device is ready to pair in the oh middle of the night. God, oh, it's hilarious. so creepy. So all my devices are possessed. So I'm getting the hot priest out of. Um, get, get hot priest. Flea bag. Flea bag to come around and uh, perform. Which is on Netflix if. If all you know, it's it's a it's a great show. It's in its second season now, mm. um, starring Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who wrote *Killing Eve* um, and *Breaking which of Sandra the Fourth o Wall*. Won the Emmy for *Much Breaking uh, of the Fourth Wall*. Yes, it's very good. Mm. Anyway, this was not so you want to watch TV or so oh, you want to. The end of the show, Val. It's just it us talking now. Everyone's so switched off. Honestly. <laughs> All right, where do we find you online, Gina? You can find me at ginamilitia.com, so that's G-I-N-A-M-I-L-I-C-I-A. I'm at um, on Instagram, at ginamilitia, Twitter, at ginamilitia. You can find me in the So You Want to Be a Photographer Facebook group. And I'm also, if you want to connect with me in person, I'm in the Goal community. So if you're a beginner uh, pro or want to take your photography to the next level, I'd love the opportunity to work with you. So just go to ginamilish.com and click on join the community. What about you, Val? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer. For more information, free resources, and Gina's regular newsletter on everything you need to know to become a successful photographer, visit ginamilitia.com.